Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. On this show, we like to delve into the culture wars and excavate the men and women, yes, I use those words deliberately, who are stuck down in the trenches searching for truth and reason in an age that wants us to worship absurdity. Today's guest, many of you will recognize as the one third of the original Outsiders trio. Conservative audiences have spent many evenings and mornings listening to both the wisdom and wit of Ross Cameron, who joins us now. Ross, welcome to the show. Well, that's a very sweet introduction, Alexandra. I move an extension of time. Well, sometimes I go to Wikipedia and introduce my guests via whatever's written there, but this time I thought I'd be kind. Uh, look, this is strange for me because I was actually sitting on my couch watching Outsiders when I decided to say, you know what, to hell with it. I'm going to foolishly wander down the path of political commentary. So it's an honour to have you on here and naturally my first move will be to talk to you with a question that makes most guests squir uh, squirm. What was it that made the young Ross Cameron, you know, a bloke that by all accounts seems to lean quite heavily into philosophy, decide to pursue a life of politics instead? Yeah, I suppose when you say lean into philosophy, it's kind of a nice, uh, it's a form of a compliment, I suppose, uh, unless an indicator of an obtuse and uh, irrelevant mind. But I think from a relatively young age, I was always a little bit of a dreamer and a wonderer uh, about what is actually going on uh, on this earth. and. What, what does it mean? I, I was troubled by the most basic questions of, you know, where, from, from where did we come? What are our origins? Do we have any kind of purpose or are we simply a random collection of atoms? Um, was there an intelligent mind behind the creation of the universe or were we uh, some otherwise inexplicable sort of collection of, uh, of chemistry and physics. And those questions, even from a relatively young age, um, I guess challenged me, uh, troubled me, engaged some part of my mind. And, um, you know, I, I remember sitting beside the rugby field in, uh, you know, probably year seven or year eight in high school and receiving an instruction from the coach uh, and thinking to myself, um, why am I obeying this instruction? <clears throat> um, in the same way I recall having a kind of philosophical moment uh, in the mic in the, uh, uh, in the open doubles tennis finals of the school competition with my partner, uh, receiving serve on um, match point and thinking to myself, uh, what is the purpose of this uh, victory or defeat? And um, so all of us, uh, all of us have got to find a way to sustain ourselves, to make uh, a, a buck, to earn a crust, to satisfy the immediate requirements to sustain ourselves and the people around us. But I think for most of us, there is also this other, this questioning part. Aristotle said that one of the most fundamental things about being a human being is the desire to know. And uh, so I, I guess I have 
been always happy to seek the counsel and the wisdom of the greater minds who have preceded us. And in that respect, uh, nothing has really changed. Well, that's an interesting answer. Normally I get one of three, money, power, or it was an accident. So uh, at least you were seeking wisdom. That's a much better reason to go into politics. But as an elected MP for many years, you were able to witness the machine of Australian politics up close. Now, many of us have delusions about the grandeur of politics, no doubt fashioned by some vague references to foreign figures like a Churchill or a Reagan or a Thatcher. But is Australian politics everything you hoped it would be? Or do you think that those who are disillusioned with the political systems that we have in this country, do they have a point that maybe there is something wrong with our political structure? Yes, well, I suppose that uh, depends on the, the standard you wish to uphold. Um, or we, to put another way, we might say it depends what you think is the objective and goal uh, of politics. I have become uh, increasingly bearish, uh, increasingly critical. I, I mean, you might say if you just look at the bald facts that Australia has had uh, since, say, let's pick federation. Um, you know, we've had uninterrupted democratic government for 122 years. Uh, we have one of the highest living standards in the world. Uh, we occupy an entire continent to ourselves, which is a glittering cornucopia of natural resources and beauty. Um, you might say, well, if you're unhappy with that, uh, you're hard to please. If we flip it over and say that the leadership of any um, city, state, nation uh, must be capable of uh, equipping its uh, constituents to compete in the generation to come, um, then, or you might say, if we look not at the sort of gross aggregate outcomes, but at the trend line, I think we have to say that Australia is in a state of rapid decline. And whether we are looking at the more immediately measurable metrics um, of, you know, uh, the amount of tax we have to pay to feed the leviathan beast of the government, um, the number of people who are, you know, sub being prescribed, uh, you know, chemicals for mental health, uh, uh, lack of concentration, depression, bipolar, whatever. Uh, if you look at just the levels of basic goodwill between unrelated citizens passing each other on the street, uh, if you look at the preoccupation of the national leadership with trivia, uh, with purely symbolic uh, vanity projects which deliver zero practical benefit to ordinary Australians but leave a, quote, you know, legacy uh, for their political sponsors, um, you know, Australia is in actually uh, very bad shape. And I guess the thing, uh, there is a line in... Um, an Ernest Hemingway novel where one character asks the other, uh, how did you go broke? Uh, and he responds uh, at first slowly and then quickly. And Australia is in the, uh, at first slowly, and in my judgment, we are about to enter the and then quickly. 
Well, your life post-Outsiders has been one rallying the troops of liberty, so to speak, in a range of different causes. There are already grumblings of annoyance among the Australian people with the expansion of international bureaucratic powers interfering in their lives. But the first real danger to Australia's democracy has come from the rather old-fashioned concept of censorship. Were you surprised, Ross, by how much of Australia's war against free speech has been waged by your former colleagues in the Liberal Party. After all, the Liberals have been quick to champion safety as a, the chief excuse to shut the public up. Yes, well, um, I, I was startled um, to see the uh, former coalition uh, Minister for Communications, member for Bradfield, Paul you know, Fletcher. Fletcher. The truth is, I don't wish to be mean, okay, but Paul winds up being forgettable because he appears to me as a kind of hologram where there is actually, you, 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 you fear that if you go to shake hands with Paul Fletcher, your hand is just gonna go right through his body into some sort of other world because there is not a single cartilage, sinew, bone, uh, matter of principle there that you are dealing with. And in that sense, Paul is your classic example of a very, very, Paul is a smart guy. He finished sort of high in his year at Sydney University uh, Law School, uh, which I know for a fact because I was in uh, the same graduating class. And he always had a, in a sense, had a good capacity to absorb information and reproduce it in an exam. And, you know, he can put on a nicely tailored suit and tie his shoelaces and present himself at the desk at nine o'clock in the morning. But I honestly think when he gets there, he has absolutely no idea what his purpose is. And so we had in, I think it, you might correct me, it might have been 2017, somewhere around there, from Paul Fletcher, Liberal Minister for Communication, the announcement that his department was sponsoring a disinformation and misinformation control bill. And had I, even as a relatively, you know, um, you know as a relatively wet behind the ears, ignorant uh, late teenager, I was familiar, um, you know, with uh, 1984 and this sort of, um, you know, uh, th this idea that a big brother was going to appoint itself as the custodian of truth and it was a completely fictional work. Um, and not only did I never in my wildest dreams imagine this dystopia could be adopted and embraced by my own country, Australia, but that it would be led by a Liberal Minister for Communications from the blue ribbon seat of Bradfield on the leafy North Shore of Sydney, meant to be a source of intellectual and cultural ballast but turns out to be the most daft, dumb, stupid, Jacinda Ardern acolyte, you know, pr priesthood bending down uh, at, at the, the temple of whatever the latest trending meme happens to be. And uh, look, I sound a bit mean, perhaps a bit contemptuous. If I do, that's because I am. 
Well, you have long been a campaigner for Julian Assange, a man who claims that he blew the whistle on government secrets because they were in the public interest. Now, Ross, are governments entitled to their secrets or are there limits to what they should be allowed to hide from the public they serve? Because we've seen our own governments here, particularly the state governments with the National Cabinet, fight extremely hard to keep secrets from the public. Now, these ones in our case were hardly secrets of a military threat against a foreign power. They seem to be kept out of what I can only describe as embarrassment for their behaviour during the pandemic. So, should there be limitations on the secrets that government should keep from their people? Well, I don't doubt uh, that when you rose uh, from your slumber this morning, knowing as I do that you bound out of bed as a morning person, singing and whistling uh, and celebrating the beauty of nature, you no doubt reached for your copy of the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, uh, you were you would have found uh, Marcus giving thanks for the lessons he learned from his father, one of which was to keep few secrets. <coughs> and um, the value of secrets uh, is massively overrated. And um, what we find is that secrets are usually or very often more trouble than they are worth and the act of collecting and keeping secrets is itself a very dangerous and high-risk business. Uh, for example, we have just seen in the last 24 hours that uh, the People's Republic of China uh, has executed a comprehensive security arrangement uh, with, I think it's Jose uh, Ramos Horta, the president of East Timor, and China is able to execute a deal uh, with East Timor, who was otherwise a sort of a, you know, non-aligned Pacific, Asia-Pacific player, in part because uh, Australia, uh, Australia's security services got busted placing listening devices inside the hotel rooms and conference meeting areas of the, uh, of the leadership of Timor-Leste when we were seeking to negotiate a gas agreement with Timor. But we thought it was to our commercial advantage for Australia to spy on our commercial counterparty. Uh, the problem was we're not very good at it. And so the so-called Australian intelligence services, who should perhaps be called the Australian dumbass collective, uh, managed to get busted uh, with their fingerprints all over the listening devices. And you can imagine what impact that has on one's relationship. Uh, with a, an important, small, tiny indeed. So here we go from a situation where John Howard champions their <coughs> um, independence. Uh, their first great moment of celebration is participating in the Sydney Olympic Games, waving their flag in absolute jubilation as a nation for the first time. But the intelligence services seeking to keep secrets destroyed Australia's relationship with East Timor, and now they've become uh, an intimate and important asset of China in the region. And I just say to you, Hillary Clinton, likewise, uh, was busted uh, when it was leaked by WikiLeaks, and indeed this is the origin of Julian Assange's problem that Hillary Clinton and the US State Department was busted when a cable was leaked, sent from Hillary to the diplomatic head of like 120 countries saying, we want you to collect the DNA of the national leadership of every country in the world.
and assemble it on a database. And so you had American diplomats going around picking the hairs off the chairs of, you know, uh, as it turned out, uh, Angela Merkel. And so then Hillary Clinton had to go through, once this was um, out, once the US was busted, Hillary had to pick up the phone and make 120 calls of apology to say to alleged close friends and partners, oh, look, I'm sorry that we have been not just spying on you, but collecting your DNA. And so I just say to you, Alexandra, that, um, you know, the benefits of secrecy and of this, you know, if I give you one more example, is that I was last, uh, had lunch uh, recently, uh, indeed yesterday, uh, with a bloke whose specialty is uh, security, uh, recognising the eyes of visitors to high security sites and managing the movement in and out of uh, secure facilities of, of visitors. And I was reflecting on the fact that when the US spent 20 years uh, wasting money, blood uh, and treasure in Afghanistan before getting uh, belted uh, by a bunch of, uh, you know, mountain um, mujahideen, Taliban, um, they walked out the door leaving uh, $60,000 million worth of weapons in Afghanistan. And one of the things they left behind was all of the biometric data of all of the Afghans who had sided with and supported the US effort in Afghanistan. <clears throat> and so they handed over to the Taliban this database, which was left kind of by accident, almost like Hunter Biden might have left a laptop behind at a repair shop or you might leave a USB stick in a taxi, the US left behind the names of hundreds of Afghan nationals who had supported and defended US assets and interests in Afghanistan. Now, the, the fate of those individual Afghans, uh, you know, we don't know. We certainly won't find it reported by uh, the Sydney Morning Herald or The Guardian, I suspect. Uh, but if I had a choice of all the individuals on the earth who I would not want to be, uh, a former supporter of the US in Afghanistan because of the loss of control of, of, of secrets, of secure information. And I guess the last thing I, I will say to you on, on this subject, Alexandra, is as the world has moved from analogue to digital, and our capacity to collect, harvest and store information has grown and grown and grown and grown. And you can't pull up at a traffic light in the city without being under surveillance. Um, we find that the ability of any party, whether it be a trade union, a big corporation, a superannuation fund, a hospital, whatever, the ability of a party to keep that information secure is under intense pressure. And, you know, the, the Australian government, the ASIO, um, you know, is like a milkmaid, uh, having gone up to the dairy and going down a slippery hill uh, covered in dew and uh, early in, in the morning in bare feet carrying two pails. And this data is just sloshing out all over the joint because it is simply not possible, no matter with the best will in the world, even with high levels of competence, you simply cannot keep 
that data secure. And that's why Julian Assange, you know, the question is what happens when the data leaks, as it will? Julian Assange says, well, usually what happens, it is bought and owned by criminal enterprises, by organised crime, by a small number of security agencies, um, by, by the rich and the elite. Assange says, no, 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 once it leaks, it should be owned by everyone. It should be published and it should be published according to the strictest journalistic standards of accuracy and verification. That's exactly what this bloke has done. He's in prison because he does his job better than any of the other so-called journalists. He should be immediately released. Well, if you speak to anybody in the software industry, the only way to keep data safe, if you actually want to keep data secure, is to put it in a filing cabinet in the bottom of a bunker somewhere in the desert, and that <coughs> will keep your data safe, but you can't keep it safe on a server because someone will get into it and look at it. And also, you're totally right. I mean, it's fine to play spy games and whatever, but I'd rather that we didn't have to sit back and watch what is effectively the Sharknado version of geopolitics and history. It's one of the least capable versions of our society that we have ever seen. But you have often spoken out about the differences and strengths between men and women. In particular, you like to quote ancient sources about the gendered roles that we have used to shape human civilization. But this world, very nearly overnight, has decided to reject biological sex and paint humans as the confused mass of either hypersexed or sexless creatures that have no idea what their place in society is meant to be. Now, is this state of mass delusion permanent? Or do you think that biology will eventually overtake this new dogma that we have and settle this bizarre age of gender dysphoria back down into something we recognise? Yeah, well, it's, it's a good question. I think uh, we may say, um, does the civilization uh, continue or will it, uh, by self-harm, um, draw itself to uh, an ignoble conclusion? Um, but, you know, I would say that the uh, so-called gender dysphoria um, is merely one uh, example in a species of um, responses of the current um, priesthood, which is its most one of its most fundamental commitments is that it is anti-nature. Uh, the so-called progressive left, uh, the big state, the deep state, is anti-human and anti-nature and wherever it finds and one of the reasons why is because uh, nature is a principle which operates uh, outside of the influence the creation uh, of the state and it reproduces outside the influence uh, and operation of the state and as a consequence uh, the bureaucracies hate nature uh, because it is not uh, something they can completely control. Uh, yet, of course, they love something like um, gain-of-function research in a virus uh, because that is something uh, they feel they can uh, control, uh, notwithstanding the fact we find that when laboratory-adapted uh, um, DNA strains of a virus uh, uh, are kept in a laboratory. They have, like data kept by, uh, you know, security services, a very great tendency to escape uh, the place they were meant uh, to be kept. But yes, I say that 
you know, if we go to uh, the origin story uh, of what we might call Western civilization, um, you know, we have a Greek stream, but we also have a Judaic uh, stream uh, from whom we get our, you know, the Judeo-Christian origin story of Genesis says uh, at the end of uh, chapter two, uh, you know, on the sixth day, God created man, male and female. He created them in his own image and he commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. And um, this fundamental binary uh, principle of opposites attracting uh, is we, we find not, not unique to the human, but indeed uh, spread out throughout over, you know, we, there are over a million species of living things uh, on planet Earth and almost all of them uh, share this same uh, reproductive principle, uh, whether it be in the plant or the animal kingdom. And once we get to the stage where we are sufficiently uncertain uh, and in doubt uh, about what it means to be a human being or what it means to be a mammal, um, you know, the, the, the culture winds up destroying itself. And if uh, gender indeed is one of the most basic building blocks of personality and character, uh, which from an early age, for example, I went to a school whose Latin motto was virile agitur, which means the manly thing is being done. And it was a boy's school. And so the concept of manhood was an explicit part of the educational project. And in part because the educator is looking for anything to be able to push against, to leverage, uh, to motivate a child on the learning experience and confidence in one's gender as a gift from nature is one of the basic building blocks of an education. So if you take every child at kindergarten and begin a sustained and persistent campaign to undermine and destroy confidence in gender, uh, you can virtually destroy their capability to understand anything else. Well, your school's actually the sibling school to my school, which was an all-girls school, and our motto was time flies faster than a weaver's shuttle. Now, what's quite funny is uh, your school used to run naked through <coughs> the back of our school, down through the ovals, and they forgot that uh, the girls there were better at cross-country than the boys were. So they were not confused about gender when I was at school, I can tell you that much for sure. Now, you were a big Trump guy. I believe at one point you stripped on Sky to reveal a Trump T-shirt and a Trump hat. Well, your boy is back in the ring fighting for a second shot at the White House against an opponent, Joe Biden, who struggles to find the stage, let alone the presidency. Now, is the White House going to be colonised once again by Trumpian politics, or is the grip of the deep state and the muddy swamp too much for Trump to overcome? Yes, well, I read uh, with a certain amount of pleasure um, the ABC, as in the US uh, version of ABC, and I think ABC, it might have been ABC, CNN, published a poll yesterday um, where Trump moved ahead of Biden for the first time last week on betting markets 
but we had a significant poll uh, yesterday which came out from a from a you know traditionally left leaning media organisation saying that Trump was 10 points ahead effectively 51 or 52 to 42 in a head-to-head Trump v Biden matchup uh, for who would you vote for if you were going uh, to vote for the president 2024 right now and look um, which is very encouraging to me. You say to me, I was a Trump guy. The truth is I have essentially always been a Trump guy. Um, I have not changed since January 2016 when I correctly, prophetically uh, predicted uh, that Trump would not only win the GOP nomination but that he would win the election. And, um, you know, Let's let's accept that Trump's flaw. Well, Trump is not without flaws. Uh, the truth is, very few men are without flaws. And I can tell you, Alexandra, it's it's not everything it's cracked up to be. It's very lonely. You know, I don't recommend it to others. Um, but uh, politics is not a uh, politics is a la carte. You get the candidates on the menu. You get those who are offered. Um, John Howard can turn around, you know, in, a, and say, oh, well, Donald Trump is uh, not fit for public office. And I'm saying, well, brother, I, I, I'm not offered Jesus of Nazareth, Mahatma Gandhi, Socrates uh, or Solon of Athens. I, I'm offered those who are on the ticket and I've got a choice between Donald Trump or Joe Biden and John Howard's contribution is, uh, you know, I don't like Donald Trump. Okay, well, sorry, brother, it's no help. Um, Trump has the great recommendation uh, that he has been prepared to confront um, elements of the big state machine, which, let's be frank, is just a racket. And Julian Assange was correct when he said in 2011, the objective in Afghanistan is not to win the war. Uh, The objective is to prosecute a permanent war Uh, in which funds are flushed out of the wallets of middle-class Americans through the uh, military-industrial complex and into the hands of companies like Raytheon, Boeing, Talos Underwater Systems uh, and the Biden family uh, trusts, uh, the political insiders who are clipping the ticket on the way through. And I guess, you know, now I've completely forgotten the question you asked me since I went off on this uh, long uh, ramble. Just remind me, Alexandra, what are we talking about? I'm asking you if Trump has half a uh, shot yeah. at actually being in the White House Look, again. he might be doing it uh, from jail. Um, you know, this business of locking up. Firstly, we discovered the Obama administration was happy to endorse, um, you know, the FBI, the, DI, the DOJ uh, and the national, you know, uh, security agencies spying on Trump in his own campaign offices. Uh, well, this is the behaviour of a, of a third world tin pot, crackpot dictatorship. It's not a uh, modern, mature uh, democracy which preserves the rights uh, and privacy of citizens. Uh, now they've gone the next step and said, oh, well, it's not enough just to spy on Trump to p- try and prove this completely spurious and dodgy Russia collusion collusion allegation, Uh, now we've actually got to lock him up. Uh, But every step they take, 
now to lock Trump up, his approvals ratings are just going up and up and up. And effectively we're seeing sort of, I think, the same thing in the US in relation to Trump as we're seeing in Australia in relation to The Voice. Um, is that the more, um, the more the big state machine molests, intimidates, and now seeks to imprison Donald Trump, the higher his polling uh, is going. And I think he can comfortably win this election from a prison cell in Georgia if necessary. Uh, and I hope he does it with RFK uh, Jr. as his running mate. Well, what's that old rule? Never create a martyr out of your political opponents. And uh, we've got Trump being martyred by the Democrats. And uh, down here in the Australian press, they're making Jacinta Price into a martyr and she's becoming more powerful every single day. But Biden's regime is an example of bad government, made more obvious by the declining mental state of its figurehead. But you've been in politics for a long time. How do you explain a situation such as Victoria, where a Labor government has abused its people, quite literally by shooting rubber bullets at citizens who were exercising their right to protest, and then, after all of the abuse, Labor has sent the state broke and has started to inflict extraordinary taxes on the public to pay for the mistakes of the Labor regime. Yet, Ross, the state is still awash with a devout Labor family group who believe they were saved and they live in some sort of progressive utopia. Can a, can a population enter a sort of state of almost, what would you call this, political brainwashing when it comes to a government? And if so, how do you combat that if you're the Liberal Party down in Victoria? Yes, well, it's, it's a very, uh, it's an interesting subject of looking at um, taking, of how the human brain works and how it works in association with others in groups. And, you know, in, in commercial life, they talk about it, you know, group psychology. Um, Narcissus was, of course, the Greek uh, boy who, man who looked at his own reflection uh, in the river and fell in love. Um, there is a concept of collective, which is quite broadly uh, studied in the academic literature, a kind of collective narcissism, where a large group of people can enter into a, a shared state psychologically. And the shared state has a range of characteristics, um, one of which is not so much belief in the beauty of one's appearance, but a belief in the beauty of one's opinions and uh, an intense desire to belong to an in-club and to excoriate, uh, to look down upon, uh, to despise, um, uh, to judge the out-group. The, the out and I think the um, Victorian situation is a case of uh, this somewhat um, intense desire of the postmodern Australian to feel that they have a virtuous moral cause. And, you know, Aristotle said that nature abhors a vacuum. And since we have given up um, belief in a set of more traditional values in which we might include, you know, God, the nuclear family, uh, private enterprise, uh, effort, 
um, and reward, all of that has gone. And so th this has created a vacuum of, of what, what do we believe in? And so what is emerging is this sort of capital L leftist, globalist, big state, capital P progressive idea and it's an interesting question to ask, you know, what does it mean to be left-wing? How do we define this phenomena, uh, which we see replicated in different places around the world? Indeed, we do say there is a globalist project and agenda, which is reproducing itself according to a bunch of talking points, which seem to get sent out each morning to major media. But what, what is its essence? What is its core? And, and I suppose I would say at its core, is a belief in the state as a superior source of moral virtue and a belief in the legitimacy of the use of force by the state against citizens to, to achieve uh, you know, human progress. And um, the Victorians have got this virus in a very, very bad way. And it's such a shame because, you know, Melbourne was for a long period of time really the commercial, the commercial centre of, of Australia. It really led the major corporations, BHP had its headquarters, I think Rio Tinto, um, and uh, the major banks tended to be headquartered in Melbourne, but they have just gradually lost, uh, been, if you like, uh, inoculated with this big state virus. Uh, to the point where now your average Melbourne citizen is the flagellating Trappist monk, you know, during lockdown, basically thrashing himself, saying, hit me harder, Dan, harder, I want more pain, you know. Um, this is what a, a modern Victorian looks like. The modern Victorian has their pursed lips up to the nipple of the state as kind of the, the beneficent uh, maternal uh, figure uh, because in truth the rest of their life is a complete vacuum. Just give them a rainbow lanyard and a vote yes uh, t-shirt and uh, they're happy. <clears throat> Well, thanks, Ross. That's an image of Daniel Andrews in the state of Victoria I didn't need to remember. It would be terribly remiss of me, of course, to avoid the topic all of your fans are waiting for. <coughs> when it comes to books, it is often the case that our works of brevity contain caverns of knowledge. And while I lean into the Renaissance philosopher Machiavelli and his work The Prince, you favour renowned philosopher and former emperor of Rome. Back when men had empires, Marcus Aurelius and his work meditations. Indeed, Machiavelli considered Aurelius to be an example of what a good prince should be. When you look around the political landscape of planet Earth, do you see any leaders with a Marcus Aurelius vibe? Or do you think that Machiavelli has a point and that history's greatest figures are found in periods of darkness where their valour is a product of the adversary they are forced to overcome? Perhaps we're yet to meet our next great Aurelius figure. Um, <clears throat> Well, you are um, quite correct uh, about Machiavelli, uh, to whom we owe the expression, the five good emperors, uh, of which uh, Marcus was the fifth uh, and last. Um, and um, look, you know, I would say, and I'm not, I'm, I've got profound respect for Machiavelli, don't get me wrong. Um, 
And, and that Machiavelli was, um, you know, the ultimate realist. And um, I likewise wish to retain uh, an attachment to reality. Uh, indeed, I recently asked a uh, friend, a, a very, well, a Jewish um, entrepreneur currently uh, flying around the world in his own jet, in part because of a determination to avoid being locked down by some daft uh, New South Wales Premier of either Liberal or Labor brand, because it doesn't really seem to matter. Uh, but when I asked him to what does he uh, ascribe his commercial success, uh, he says uh, a ruthless commitment to reality. And I think Machiavelli uh, demonstrated that. Um, and I think, you know, what we're always looking, what we're ultimately looking for in a political candidate is this combination uh, of a, a ruthless commitment to reality uh, combined with a guiding set of principles which are not enforced in some doctrinaire um, sort of priestly way, uh, but which guide the state in its confrontation with reality. And, you know, it was Thales of Miletus, uh, the, really the first of the seven sages, who said that dogma precedes catastrophe. And when we look at somebody like uh, Chris Bowen, uh, the Minister for Energy, uh, or should really be called the Minister for No Energy um, in the federal government, um, he's a guy who is just a complete hostage and slave to dogma. His brain is not capable of any kind of original thought or any engagement with reality because he's just got this doctrinaire set of liturgical principles in his mind about clean energy, you know, renewables. And it doesn't matter if he is driving a locomotive towards uh, a confrontation with a cement block. Uh, he, he's, he's totally indifferent to what's happening in the world around him. The point about uh, Bowen, though, uh, could equally have been said with just as much conviction about Matt Keane, uh, the New South Wales Liberal Minister for No Energy, because they are all uh, engaged in this war against nature, against reason, uh, against reality. Now, we do see, and, and the truth is, as I look around the world, <clears throat> um, you know, I listened to Dr. Philip Khoury, who, no, sorry, Dr. Pierre Curie, who was one of the eminent cardio figures who saw the madness taking place uh, during the, uh, this COVID uh, disaster of forced injection of experimental drugs into the arms of children, pregnant mothers, uh, every man and his dog. Um, and Curie came out uh, as part of an eminent person in the medical establishment and said, um, this is madness. But he said, if you want to look at the three countries that have most completely lost their minds, uh, in the COVID hysteria, he said they are uh, Canada, New Zealand and Australia. <clears throat> the worst in the world for this uh, mental illness. And, 
you know, so we have to say that seems unlikely. You know, we have in Melbourne essentially the longest unbroken lockdown in the world of this sort of trapper self-flagellating, you know, we love being whipped and belted uh, by our government. We love watching the destruction of our ancient rights to assembly, mobility, uh, speech and consent uh, to medical experiments. Um, we see in Argentina, you know, a flicker. Uh, uh, you know, we've got a bloke running for president uh, who is a genuine, serious, hardcore libertarian. And the polls are indicating uh, he's got as good a chance as anyone else in the field. That would be a stunning result if Argentina uh, elected a libertarian. We see in somewhere like Hungary, still the muscles, the, uh, you know, the twitching fibre of resistance to, you know, this centralising bureaucracies of the UN, the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organisation, uh, George Soros uh, and the other, you know, Nero-style figures who are all really sitting on the balcony of Western civilization, you know, playing the fiddle uh, while the culture burns and destroys itself, uh, eating canaps uh, and drinking champagne and celebrating this as some act of, of creativity. Um, Donald Trump, I think, is a resistance figure. And even though in the end he basically got rolled by NATO, he got rolled in relation to Julian Assange. I mean, he did at least start out uh, and he did secure the border. Uh, he did withdraw uh, the US from the daft, stupid Paris Climate Accord. Uh, he did commit to rebuilding the US's energy self-reliance. And so I say Trump uh, is a, you know, is, is, is shows potential. We're all flawed. Uh, so I am... Alexandra, not entirely uh, without hope. I mean, we have just elected the Honourable John Ruddick, MLC, to the New South Wales Upper House, a Liberal Democrat, the first Liberal Democrat elected to the New South Wales Parliament. And he talked about, indeed, went as far as to endorse anarcho-capitalism uh, in his maiden speech, in which he said, he wished to reduce the upper house of the New South Wales Parliament. He said he wished to reduce the state by so much that it would effectively cease to exist and the chamber in which they were debating should be turned into a museum, uh, privately owned, of course. And so, you know, there is flickers of, of life, of hope, uh, of resistance. Uh, you know, we wish they were more widely spread than they are, but we are engaged in a ruthless commitment to reality. We take whatever encouragement we can find. Well, it's interesting that you mention President Trump because uh, Trump's grand battle against the deep state is a big part of his public appeal, a champion of old for fighting for the people. If not in a hot war with foreign nations, he was definitely fighting a, you know, a domestic rival there. Now, Trump was pretty smart to pick an existential threat to battle where he could declare small victories whenever the press cycle started to slump. Now, unfortunately for Trump, the deep state is not a fictional opponent like climate change. It was a nest of vipers that eventually bit back. 
does the Liberal Party need to have a great battle to pick up its pick itself up in the polls, or should it simply, you know, go and grab a pitchfork and start going after the communist dragon and accompanying nest of collectivist isms that have taken over the West? Because as I see it, the Liberal Party is not waging any battles, and so it is not seen as a victor. Yeah, I think <clears throat> um, when we use uh, every time, you know, we owe it to the Greeks uh, a, an appropriate concern for definition and to know what it is we are really uh, talking about. The, the, the Liberal Party is a completely incoherent organisation which has uh, no real uh, understanding of, of, of what it is and it's uh, fragmented in such a way that it's not capable of coherent action. So if you take, for example, Peter Dutton, you know, Peter Dutton was allegedly ran uh, against, uh, with, you know, ran with, against Scott Morrison, the leadership of the Liberal Party. Uh, there was a moment when the WhatsApp groups lit up with the fact that Dutton has the numbers, Dutton has won, uh, but it turned out they weren't uh, counting effectively, in particular on the genius of Alex Hawke as a pure Machiavellian backroom numbers guy uh, who had ghosted, uh, voted strategically uh, for, um, you know, for, for, to knock out one candidate in order to take the benefit of their clump of votes. Uh, but the point was Dutton was being pitched to us and to the world as a conservative, uh, yet we learn that once Morrison gets elected, it was Dutton who really brokered the deal for the National Party to capitulate and betray its base to adopt uh, Carbon Zero 2050. And um, so then we find Dutton uh, presented with this obviously daft and stupid, uh, you know, race, racist bureaucracy uh, voice to parliament, voice to the executive, voice to everything under the sun proposal, a big new grab for power by the state. Uh, Dutt sits there uh, for a year, basically shifting from one butt cheek to the other on the fence, not knowing how to respond. Uh, to this phenomena. Whereas, you know, John Howard once said that some ideas are so stupid, uh, it, they should be immediately, obviously, uh, transferred immediately to the bin. And that is what the Liberal Party should have said in response to the voice from its first articulation. Uh, but instead, they sat there for a year. And it really took, um, it took uh, Jacinta Price who is the, um, uh, the sort of David uh, figure um, in the David and Goliath contest. Uh, she is the Cyrus the Great uh, figure. There is an absolutely beautiful story uh, by Xenophon, uh, the second most famous of uh, the disciples of Socrates after Plato, who wrote, the book, The Education of Cyrus, uh, the great Persian king, and tells the story of Cyrus as a boy, only about 14 or 15 years old, who was included kind of by accident when in training under his uh, grandfather, the king of the Medes. 
and they confronted in a, in a hunting party, they confronted the enemy who had sort of drifted into their sphere and the two armies unexpectedly were facing each other and the generals in command were trying to figure out what to do and the young 15-year-old boy Cyrus says, I thought I heard the, ish, the, the, the command to charge. And so the young prince takes off on his horse, javelin drawn, hurling himself at the enemy and the other generals embarrassed into action charge after him, knowing what the consequence to them would be if the heir and successor were killed in battle at the age of 15. Well, Jacinta Price is Cyrus the Great, you know. She's there looking around saying, who is going to give the order to charge in this operation? And I'm not, definitely not waiting for that daft Peter Dutton uh, because we'll be here forever. And the Liberal Party should make Jacinta Price its leader. She is, in truth, the natural leader, the intellectual leader, the spiritual leader of the Liberal Party because she actually knows what she believes in. Peter Dutton has no idea what he believes in. I don't even know. Now Peter Dutton's, this Liberal government is saying, oh, well, we're going to oppose the misinformation and disinformation bill, which is basically a direct replica of the Liberal Party's own bill. Oh, but we're going to oppose it because we believe in misinformation and disinformation. We're fully signed up to Orwell's dystopia, but we would like the bureaucracy to sort of organise and arrange it in a slightly different way. Uh, you know, the, the question is whether the Liberal Party should be just given a dignified burial, uh, whether like a flag which has been accidentally dragged along the ground, it should just be folded up under cover of night and buried. Uh, that's probably uh, what should happen to the Liberal Party of Australia. Well, Ross, that was excellent as usual. If people wish to follow your work today, where can they find you? I hear you have a radio show. Well, this is the allegation. Um, I do, yes, indeed, I do um, a two-hour radio show once a week from 7 to 9 p.m., which you can find called Modestly, uh, The Ross Cameron Show. Um, when I was trying to decide what to call the show, I said, well, I wonder what Alexandra Marshall calls her show. And I just followed in your model. It's on tntradio.live. We are a cost nothing to tune in. We're a digital station broadcasting globally, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, we just, tntradio.live was the sponsor of the great freedom uh, picnic in Hyde Park, which took place indeed uh, Saturday this week. A great gathering of those saying no uh, to The Voice, sponsored by tntradio.live. And so, yeah, they've got me on. I do it sort of for therapy, um, to have one little chamber in which reason uh, is the king. Uh, but, you know, if I can do it as well as you're doing it here at ADH.TV, uh, I'll be very pleased with myself. Well, thank you very much, Ross. And that is all we have time for here on Marshall Live. We will catch you next week.